All right, so we uh, would like to welcome you back to another. Oh man, I didn't plan any kind of. Uh, uh, oh, oh, I got a word. Overselling adjective for this one. You got one? I got one. I uh, Welcome to another moderately neato episode <laughs> of V8 Radio. <laughs> and Gee, of course, Wally. I have to give the nod to George Carlin for that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that sounds like an episode of The Beaver right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How was your day, Beaver? Gee, gee Wally, it was, it was moderately neato. <laughs> oh heck, Beef! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm your host, Kevin Osti, joined as always by uh, Mr. Mike Cuball Clark at uh, V8 Radio Studios North. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's a beautiful day up here, up in the North area. Yeah. Finally, huh? Yeah. How about it? It is just kicking out here. I'm loving it. It's moderately neato. It is more than moderately neato. It is super neato. You don't want to go excessively neato on anything. Exactly, no. Inexplicably neato. Right, right, right. Well, you know, as uh, as we do these episodes, uh, we came up with this idea a while back of enticing people to listen to the whole thing, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's more than just you and I that hear this, we hope. Uh, yes, we hope. <laughs> and one of our ways of enticing was the, uh, the trivia question concept and uh, uh, I don't, I don't keep score, but I think I know I, I've dropped a few. I know you've dropped a few. <laughs> you're, you're very kind to me, thank you. <laughs> Do you have one for this week that you're prepared? I, to, I indeed have one. Yes, sir. You prepared yes, to sir. put me in the ground with? Uh huh. I doubt it, but uh, I'm always giving it my best shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, you have one. I do. You want me to go All first? Right. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. let's you. Let's have you go first this All time, right. just right. to really blow my mind. All right. Well, this one—it's uh, not related to a specific car. It's actually related to all cars in the United States at one point. Uh, and I—I I, I recently just heard this, and if you heard it from the same source I did, you'll get it right, and I will laugh. But we'll see. <laughs> okay. Um, in what year did the United States impose the 55 mile an hour speed limit? And why was that done is the bonus. The question is what year, but the bonus is why. That was imposed, I I believe, in... And I have to caveat the bonus because I'm making up my opinion on why. (laughs) Okay. Understood. Understood. Well, I remember. Well, the the bonus was. uh, I know that the uh, the tagline was "55 saves lives." Right. So, and it also saved a lot of gas too. Um, but the year it was imposed, I want to say, nineteen seventy four. Nineteen. I didn't hear it from your source, but I'm going to say seventy four. Nineteen seventy four. He says. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems. Uh contextual i guess to what was going on back in the 70s mm-hmm. you had the gas crisis going on uh people needed to save more gas people were dropping their super cool muscle cars because they didn't get good mileage driving hondas around in pintos before that for their mileage and all that horrific stuff yeah it was a dismal time it was it was poor build quality poor the gas lines well, unless you All drove a, a Super Duty uh, Trans Am, you're still okay. Right. True. 74 was, a, was still a holdout for that car. True. Oh, that's right. That's right. It was. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I will note that as a 1974. And then your rationale is, is perhaps why? 55 saved lives. All right. I will note that, too. All right. Right on. All right. What do you got Kevin, for me? Because Ke- Kevin gives away nothing. I could be dead nuts on and he wouldn't let me know. Well, you know, what? then they tune out. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. That's a, that's a good point. I can learn from you. Like, that's the reason, too, you know. Not that- <laughs> All right. I got a few questions here. I'm trying to pick one. Pick Ooh. the best one to really bake your noodle. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Here, here I'll go with this one. Uh, when, when did the first mass-produced overhead valve V8 engine hit the streets in America. American-built or in yeah. American-built mass-produced American built. overhead V8? Overhead valve V8. 
uh, overhead valve V8. Mm-hmm. I'm bonus gonna... question. Bonus. I'm sorry. Bonus question is which manufacturer came out with it? Uh, I'm going to say it was uh, 1949 Cadillac. 1949 Cadillac. Yeah. Is that your final answer, sir? Well, that's what I'm thinking right now. Um, and that was certainly one of the more popular ones. Mm-hmm. But the trick here is that there could have been a far less mass-produced version that hit the well, streets. Well, again, we're that. talking ma- we're talking mass-produced. We're not talking like onesie twosie craft-built stuff. Yeah, yeah. Why not? I'll go with the forty-nine Cadillac. Forty-nine Cadillac. All right. I am notating that. There we go. Uh, yes, nice. I saw the notation. <laughs> what are you? A, what are you? A surgeon now? You're. You're. Looks like you're <laughs> signing prescriptions there. <laughs> well, this is a precision operation here. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> all right well so, what, what's what's happening in uh, in your neck of the woods these days oh in my neck of the woods i've been gosh and, and that's code by the way for i have nothing prepared for today's show <laughs> <laughs> it's okay we're finally on the same page because i never have anything prepared. <laughs> G- giving our li- giving our listener uh, more for his or her podcast dollar <laughs> exactly <laughs> Right on. Which we've not yet collected. <laughs> Gosh. Well, in the automotive, my automotive world, not a lot going on. I just had to do some repairs to my daily driver. I had some cooling system issues and um, got that worked out uh, last Thursday. And other than that, I mean, I haven't touched the GTO. I haven't heard from my guy, my machinist. And um, I'm at this point, I mean more than doomed for taking it on the power tour. However, I am going on the power tour in a few oh, legs. Right on. Uh, my, at, yeah, at, my, at this my point, that's bro- only a couple weeks away. Exactly, yeah. Just uh, what, June June 11th, I believe. It's starting to kick off June 9th or 10th or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, But l- my, uh, my neighbor Robert with the 66 Galaxy has graciously offered to let me ride shotgun with him on a few legs. So, oh, right on. Yeah, so we'll hit the Des Moines leg, uh, the uh, Davenport leg, and um, the Champagne leg. Oh, cool! Coming back. Unfortunately, <clears throat> we're not going to make it to Gateway, which I kind of really wanted to, but uh, not happening this time. Unfortunately, I think I knew a guy in high school that we used to call the Champagne leg. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but and the show gets better and better, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, this year's power tour is uh I mean it's always a heck of an experience uh and it's it has grown in in I would say literally exponentially from from when I started doing it a million years ago. My only uh my only complaint about this year's tour and somebody posted some and re- kind of in recent years too. Somebody posted something online with the route and I responded just with a photograph of uh of corn. You know, because <laughs> right. this is the cornfield tour extraordinaire going from uh, Kansas City, right? Is that where it starts? Yeah, it does. To yes. Des Moines, then uh, through Illinois, and then down southern Illinois, and then over into Indiana, and then down mm-hmm. to Kentucky. So it is, it's a lot of corn to see. But at the, the flip side is there's also going to be, you know, 5,000 cars to look at. So yeah, you might not see the corn. Yeah, yeah. I had to be reminded of that. And that 66 Galaxy is a, uh, is that a hardtop car or is it a convertible? No, it's a convertible. That's what I thought. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. And he's been doing a lot of, you know, tweaks to making sure everything is right with it. He was having a charging system problem that he got fixed. Apparently on the, on the Galaxy, uh, if you're the, it doesn't have a voltmeter, it has the, uh, the volt light, you know, the mm-hmm. idiot light. And if that light is burned out, you will not charge. Your charging system will not work. It's part of the circuit. Yeah, it is. And That's he didn't silly. realize that. Yeah. And uh, he he was having, you know, forever, couldn't figure out why his alternator wasn't putting out, you know, 14 volts. It was at like 12.1 and it would slowly die off and it was making him crazy. He even replaced the alternator for crying out loud. And uh, then he finally did some research and figured out that the uh, light wasn't turning on and the bulb was good, but there was a break in the circuit somewhere and he found the wire that that was disconnected and he reconnected it and voila, he's charging at 14 volts and he's super happy and 
I see him driving that stinking thing everywhere. That's fantastic which, because that it is fantastic, and that's a weird little problem. Um, when we did that '66 seven liter, we didn't encounter that issue, but I've heard that happening before, where the mm-hmm. the gauge or the idiot light is part of the circuit, and without it, you got nothing. Yeah. You got nothing. Does that that car has a cold light? A cold light also in the dash when you first start up. It's a blue light that turns on. It's just yeah, cold. Yeah, I don't remember seeing that. Yeah. in his car, I've seen that before in in Ford cars. Uh, a kid I knew in high school, he had a Cougar, and I believe it had that cold light as well. I think a '68, '69 Cougar. Yeah, and I can only imagine that that's to tell you not to expect regular performance yet. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's a cool thing for back then, but um, it was a cold light. Actually, it was beyond cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh, this, this car is cold. <laughs> I always thought the other fun one was in the uh, in the diesel cars of the late seventies, the GM diesels, the Oldsmobiles, and the Cadillacs. When you turn yeah. the key on those, well, and, and some later trucks too, they had a wait light. Oh, really? It would say wait, and uh, uh, the trucks. You know, because I guess in the 80s when when things became the global, when they took the words off gauges, basically, and everything became symbols, Sure. the uh, the symbol is a coil, you know, like your, uh, your uh, it's not the ignition coil, but your glow plugs are, are warming up, sure. you know, so you got to right. wait a second. But in the 70s, they just had this thing that said, wait. <laughs> it was just a big light that lit up. Like, wait. <laughs> For the love of all that's holy, wait, please, yeah, wait. And, and I knew a guy, and a lot of those cars got converted to gasoline engines because those diesel engines, there wasn't, it's not that they were terrible engines, but the control systems were all mechanical. And today, our diesels are so great because they're turbo diesel with electronic controllers and, right. and high technology. Well, back in the 70s, you had an injector pump, and you know that's about mm-hmm. it. So they right. didn't run that great. So a lot of them got converted to gasoline engines, and the, the primary diesel engine was an Oldsmobile block. And an old right. 350 or a 307 would drop right in its place, even a 455 if you had one laying around. So uh, many, many of those were converted to gas. And I knew a guy who, or I, I didn't know him, but I saw a car once that they wired the weight light into the brake pedal switch. So when you step on the brake, it would say wait. Because <laughs> you no longer needed that light. <laughs> right on. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, what are you doing? Well, according to this, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Yeah. Can't you see? I'm waiting. Yes. <laughs> yes. But back in the dismal times again of the knee-jerk reaction to the giant gas crunch. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I remember that when I was a kid. I remember odd and even days. And uh, if you're, you know, your license plate ended at an odd number, you, want, you, you could get gas on the odd day and likewise with the even. And um, I remember my mom, she'd be so low on gas sometimes, and she had an even plate, and it would be an odd day, and she would try to scam scam in there and get gas, and people would yell at you, that's an, that's an even day plate, come on. Yeah, and, she'd steal her neighbor's uh, license plate or something. Yeah, exactly. Huh. And that's interesting. I guess back then all the plates ended in a number yeah, and not a letter. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Stuff you just don't yeah. think about. I forgot all about yeah. that odd even deal. Yeah, that was crazy, and you know the long lines and no gas and all that. Oh, it was it was rough. It was rough. Mm-hmm. I remember, my mom drove. She back then she had a a seventy five Mustang two uh, with the the three hundred two V eight in there. It was a it was a pretty cool car. A hatchback and all that. I th- I thought it was the coolest thing. I didn't know it was a just a <laughs> a Pinto underneath. Yeah, right. But, uh, with thirteen inch wheels or something or. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, you mentioned that 66. Um, the 7-liter we restored finally went home to the owner. And, Did it? And the car's been done for a long time, but the, uh, the, the owner didn't have a place to put it that he was happy with, so we ended up storing it for quite a while until he was ready to bring it home. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting topic cause, because here's a car that, you know, we did a complete restoration on, uh, save for maybe one or, well, let me rephrase that. There's a lot of new parts in the car and there's a lot of restored parts in that car because you can't find uh-huh. a lot of that stuff. And he ended up taking it home and uh, uh, drove it. The first problem was uh, gasoline. 
<laughs> lower octane gas and it was detonating heavily. Oh, so, boy. you know, he called and he's like, I think the timing's off on this. You know, there's a big problem. And it's like, well, what do you got for gas? So mm-hmm. once the uh, fuel got changed back up to a, a higher octane, because that's a 10, I think a 10 and a half to one uh, 428 in that car. So the wow. compression, compre- and it's all cast iron. So compression's Ooh. high, makes a lot of heat. Mm-hmm. Sure. So he got that sorted out, and then uh, he took it out. I guess he ran a couple of tanks of gas through it right away, which was good. He drove it a lot. Um, good. But it developed an issue, and it wouldn't start. Huh. And it's like, oh, man. And, and as a restorer or a shop, you hate to see these things leave and have problems, you know, because we've touched absolutely everything on that car. Right. Uh, and, and it's always kind of interesting to communicate with the customer about a freshly restored car and and an issue that might have occurred and in this case the problem was the neutral safety switch in the console and Uh, and you might want to is your buddy roberts a column shift or a floor shift is a column shift column well the floor shift on these cars every one i've ever been in the shifter detent in the console is just the sloppiest thing ever and, is that right? Yeah, and, and you can rebuild them, but even so, it's just not a very precise click, click, click into gear. Sure. So I think they get monkeyed with quite a bit, and that slop allows that neutral safety switch to either become out of adjustment, uh, and the safety switch itself is a slider. So when you slide the shifter into park or into neutral, it hits a certain spot in the switch, which allows the car to be started. Well, in this case, it was not allowing anything to happen <laughs> in any position, which I guess was safe. He couldn't start it in reverse or something. Yeah. But, you know, here's the whole situation. A guy just has, you know, got the car back and, you know, he's got a lot invested in it. And he goes with the family or his girlfriend and her kid, I guess. And they go for a ride. And here's Mr. Hotshot in his car. And all of a sudden it won't start. Uh, so brother. the pressure's on, you know. And, and, and she, unfortunately, has given him a hard time, you know, I thought you just had this thing restored. You know, what's the problem? You know, and and as a car guy, I understand fully that stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. It just does. But not everybody gets that. And, And so I guess the point of this little dissertation is that even though... You've, you might have spent a whole lot of money and a lot of time on restoring a car from top to bottom. So a, a, something will fail. Uh, they always mm-hmm. do. Uh, and as Trevor, our lead mechanic, pointed out, mm-hmm. that the, uh, the biggest part of a brand new car dealer is the service department. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a very good point yes these are brand new cars and the you know the biggest deal is that yes they break mm-hmm. when you look at a car that was built uh, 50 years ago and and has been gone through yes something also will break but of i course. think a lot of people have a mentality that oh well it's restored so everything's new and we have this connotation that new means functioning Mm-hmm. which is not a nice thing to hope for, but in reality is not always right. true. Right. Uh, we see it all the time. You take an alternator out of the box and it doesn't work. Or, you know, you, you name the part, there's a chance right. that it can be broken you're out of the box. And, okay, absolutely. or it could break during operation. And even if it's not that long of a usage period, because we put several hundred miles on that car, not a problem. Started every time. In fact, I was very impressed with... Uh, it had a demon carburetor on it, which um, I've had limited experience with demons. Uh, I don't know very many people that have them in a, just a regular street driving application. I know some guys that drag race with them. And this thing was great. The, it was incredible how easy easy starting the car was. The choke circuit worked perfectly. I mean, you hit the key and bam, it was off. So, of course, I was a little bit surprised to learn that he had a problem. But as soon as he told me what it was, you know, what it was doing, um, you know, I naturally just... it. it it's the neutral safety switch. So I think the message is that you want to make sure that the customer doesn't color the whole restoration based on one part that went south. Right. You know, because, and I think that's what was happening to him with his significant other, you know, and now all of a sudden it's like, well, what else is wrong with this car? And you know, you, why did you (laughs) spend all this money on it? It's like, no, 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 no. Just because this (laughs) neutral safety switch uh, and, and I believe it actually just to be out of adjustment. I think it just slid in, in the housing. Um, that has nothing to do with the, you know, 
thousands of hours that were put into metalwork and bodywork and paintwork right. and interior and assembly and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But I know even in my own case, if I spent a bunch of cash on a car to shop and I went to pick it up and something simple went wrong, I'd be mad. You know, I'd be like, mm-hmm. what, how, how did you guys miss this? And I got to right. step back and think as a car guy, well, they didn't, perhaps they didn't miss anything, you know. and, and Right. Well, I, I deal with that as well with my customers. We have a, we have a term that we use, and I'm sure it's, it's everyone can use. It's called, you know, perception is reality. And to the customer, their perception is there was a, a not the best job done on their car, and that's just that's their reality, and it's your job as as the shop owner to adjust their perception so they do see how things really are. Listen, this is not our fault, but we'll take care of it. This is a, a manufacturing uh, defect. You know, there's thousands of parts in this in this car. Every other one of them works great. This one particular small piece is just your issue, and we'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, if they're a reasonable person, they'll accept that. And well, I mean, say, okay, great. I actually congratulated him on it. Um, not to be not to be a smartass, but <laughs> I told him that they don't break if you don't use them. So it's cool that you're out using it. <laughs> you know, right on. and something broke. Do I, I feel terrible that, you know, you got a hard time about it. Um, mm-hmm. But again, you know, you got to walk the line there too, to kind of adjust, as you say, the customer's perception of reality, because you want them to understand they got a great car, but you want them to be prepared and realistic in case something does go wrong. And then exactly. I, I want them to know what I'm prepared to do about it. You know, if they do have a problem, you know, I'm not just going to say, well, that's your problem now and hang up on them. You know? <laughs> Gee, that stinks. Bye. <laughs> Which kind of gets into the next thing. And that's, well, who who's responsible for the parts? Uh, because many of these, if not most of the parts in a restoration are not warranted from the start. So gotcha. if you buy a performance suspension kit or you buy, a, you know, ball joints or whatever, they might not come with any warranty whatsoever. The next thing is that they might have a 90-day or a one-year or something, but this car took a year and a half to restore. So the warranty's out before you even use it. And, yeah. and there's been cases where you don't know that a part is bad until it's in in motion. So luckily, we've been able to, uh, you know, we've got great you know, relationships with the manufacturers of the stuff that we work with in our shop. Mm-hmm. So if something like that happens, we can generally call them and say, hey, look, uh, you know, this, this part X has been sitting on the, sh- you know, on the shelf and then in this car and now we're finally driving it and it doesn't work right. Can you help us out? And nine times out of 10, they'll say, yeah, just send it back and we'll switch it out. Even though it's not really our fault and it's not their fault and that's right. kind of beyond the warranty. Um, but what they don't say is, yeah, and we'll cut you a check to uh, take the dashboard apart and replace that thing. <laughs> Yeah, because we've had situations where there's been a part deep deep inside a dashboard or in the suspension or in the transmission you know to where sure the 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 or an engine we just had a that's a whole nother story but we just had a uh a flat tap cam go bad last last week you know it was a remanufactured engine and the engine builder's like well sure you know we'll we'll give you another cam and it's like well a i don't want another flat tappet cam and b i gotta tear this car apart i gotta tear tear the motor apart and i gotta take the grill out to get the cam out and all the rest of it and who's gonna pay for that you know and yeah and in that case it was a situation where we had told the customer that we didn't want to do a flat tappet cam and he provided the engine and you know we 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 followed every spec to the t you know, we've got General Motors right. uh, uh, recommenda- recommended break-in procedure on the cam. We've got Comp Cam's recommended break-in on the cam. And the en- whatever the engine builder sent us as a cam break-in, by the way, it was written by like a three-year-old. The, the, <laughs> the, the documentation they sent for a flat tap of camshaft, and, and, and here's the rub on those, to use the, the pun, if you got that. Sure. A flat tap of <laughs> cam will go bad if the lifters don't spin on the cam right away which could happen if something's over-tightened or you use the wrong lubricant or you use the wrong uh, uh, break-in procedure, or it can just happen anyway. And yeah. the, the procedure we like to use is um, make sure everything's lubed up properly. 
um, we always put an external oil pressure gauge on everything. We use an additive, everything according to the can manufacturer. Start it up. Um, we like to start them up with the valve covers off and, and check to see that the lifters are spinning and all the rest of it and run it for a half an hour and then shut it off and, and basically be nice to it for the first 500 miles in a nutshell, uh, checking the adjustment of the rockers and everything else along the way. What these guys sent was start the car for a minute, shut it off, and then go drive it. Really? Right, which to me either is a roller cam break-in procedure. That's what that sounds like to me. That they might have put in the wrong box, but they sent two copies of that. And then they specified an oil. They specified a, a Rotella... Uh, I think a 1540 weight oil, which is a predominantly diesel truck oil. And the reason why they expect that is years ago, that used to have a high content of zinc in it, which was better for flat tap of cams. Well, a couple of years ago, when trucks went to requiring exhaust fluid and requiring you know, having catalytic converters, all the zinc left the Rotella oil also. So that's hmm. not what to use. Um, so... In order for them to honor any kind of a warranty, we had to follow their procedure, you know. But at the same time, we all said, no, we're not going to follow that procedure on the break-in. We, we ended up using their lubricant and a comp cams additive to kind of cover us. Right. Um, and we still had the problem. And now you're stuck Jeez. because the customer is like, you know, he just bought this engine and it was in our shop. We did the install. And now, because the break-in instructions from the manufacturer were completely wrong, we didn't follow them, so are we on the hook. But we use GM's recommendations, you know? Right. <laughs> Jeez. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll send you another camshaft. And it's like, oh, man. Yeah. So we ended up... Yeah, thanks for nothing. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and part of me thinks that if, you know... We're fortunate enough to have customers to start with, so I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, becoming adversarial with our customer, but I, I would right. hope that if if our recommendation of a roller cam engine to start with would have sunk in a little bit deeper, you know, and, yeah. and we allowed him the freedom to say, you know, well, no, I really want this one, and this is what happened. We told him this is what could happen. Yeah. So now I, I'm, I, I feel terrible for this poor guy because he spent a bunch of money and this thing went bad. And we've got full documentation on everything we did step by step. The, en mm -hmm. the engine builder, of course, is blaming us. Uh, of course. Of course. Uh, you talk to comp cams and they say, you know, we don't tell anybody to use that lubricant. So they're wrong right out of the box over there. Um, end of the day, we ended up putting a roller cam in it and, uh, um, you know, eating a, a large chunk of that labor to do it to keep uh. the customer happy. Um, and, but the customer did spring for a roller cam and, you know, it's just, well, the, as they should. Yeah. It's, it's much safer and a better performer anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's a system of compromise, but, uh, you know, customers today and people in general are used to a new cars, not having, you know, as many problems or they don't worry about the problems because it's under warranty. You can you just, yep. you know, for the first few years anyway, you can just take your car. And especially when you perceive that that car to be new, I bought my brand new car. I'm going to take it back to the shop for warranty and darn it, I'm going to make them put a new engine in it and they're going to do it. Well, that mentality kind of translates. I just had my car restored. It's all new. Something went wrong. I'm going to make them do this. Right. The difference is I don't have a warranty war chest of right. <laughs> funds available. I, I don't have a manufacturer backing me up to pay me for my time. That they agree to pay me for for these warranty defects. Absolutely, yeah, you're you're on the hook. I guess that also it makes you as a shop owner want to explain in detail and make sure the customer understands what you're going to be responsible for. You know, if they bring parts in for you to put in their car, well, you know what, I can't warranty this part if it if it breaks. You know, I. I can't even probably warranty my labor to replace it if it breaks, unless unless we put it in wrong, which we're probably not going to do. Right. And the challenge is everybody wants to save money, definitely, including myself. So I understand bringing the parts in. And to your point about us not being able to warranty a part that's brought to us, that's not an ego thing. I'm not saying that your part is bad. 
right. I just have to provide paperwork of the transaction. You know, sure. I got to make sure right. that you know if 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 I'm a I'm a we're a direct buy dealer and an official dealer and stocker for a lot of these different companies, and we use those companies for a reason because you know we we've chosen to work with them. So if one of those parts goes bad, again, like I said before, we have a good relationship and we can get it taken care of. When somebody brings something in, uh, who knows what happened? Yeah, you have no chain of custody for that part. You don't know what it's been through. You have zero uh, experience with it. So right. that makes total sense. And then when it comes to, uh, you know, to, to telling the customer up front, maybe it's just me, um, but I always hate to talk about the, I do it, but I, I hate to talk about the potential negatives and failures and bad stuff right out of the box. But you have to do it. You got to say, you know, and in and, and the very beginning, we try to have these conversations and say, this could go wrong. Um, and you don't want to, we, we work in an interesting industry because nobody needs what we do. Nobody needs these cars, right? This isn't like food right. or a dishwasher, you know, something that you have to have. So it's right. real easy for somebody to go, yeah, what you're telling me is that you're going to, you know, this thing's going to be junk and I'm going to have a bunch of money in it. So I'm just not going to do it, Right. Well, I'm, I'm never going to mislead a customer and say, oh, yeah, everything's great. Just send it over here and it's going to be awesome. And then it takes a dive and then you stand there and go, well, that's too bad. But, <laughs> but I, I really want them to know that whatever the risk is, this is what the risk is. And when it comes to installing the part or um, you know, making it work, we document everything like crazy. Um, more than just, uh, you know, receipts and, and paperwork that way, but photographs of, of how the thing went together. We do all of our uh, engine startups on video, and we, we shoot video with the oil pressure gauge right away and the temperature gauge, and, and right we document where the timing was. And chances are we either have photos or video of the lubricants that we use when we put it together and the settings on the, the lifters and the valve adjustments and all that stuff. So that when something does go wrong and the manufacturer or the engine builder or whoever, the customer says, well, you guys screwed it up. I can say, well, it's, it's entirely possible that we did screw it up, mm -hmm. but here's what we did. And here's the proof mm -hmm. of what we did. And if this is, if this is screwed up, you know, then, you know, we, we certainly cop to it more, more often than not, it's, oh yeah. Okay. Well, we see what you did and it, it really wasn't your fault because our, sure. our team knows what they're doing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And the stuff still happens. Yeah, it does happen. I mean, I mean, it's not your first rodeo, and you guys definitely know what you're doing. And I love the fact that you do, you, you take zillions of pictures and, and video of the, of the restorations you do. I mean, just the ones that we see on the website versus the ones you do for every one of your cars that you that you work on. It's um, it really helps cover yourself, and it, and it's also good for the customer. They have documentation of, of all the work they've done. Uh, that you that you that you did for them you know they can take that with them and, and it's secure in the fact that you did a quality job right whatever work you did well at the end of the day we're all car fanatics and mm -hmm. and we're all on the same team um but when you introduce a bunch of money into a project that's when people can become suspect you know and and, and i would <laughs> much rather be able to say hey look you know for the past year or whatever it's been six months two years whatever uh, you know, we've, we've kept you in the loop on stuff and we've always showed you the pictures and you're free to, we have an open door policy. Anybody can come visit anytime they want. And, mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we ask that they call ahead purely to make sure that we're there. Cause sometimes, uh, our technicians are usually there all the time, but Kelly and I might be traveling and are in an event or something. Right. And it's not one of those deals. But I tell them, you don't have to call in advance because I got nothing to hide. It's not like I'm going to pull your car out of mothballs and, you know, try and make it look like we're working on it. Everything in the shop is being worked on. So surprise visits are okay, too. I just don't want you to be disappointed if you wanted to see us. And right. we're at the upholstery shop or something, you know, down the street. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, you, you try to, you know, make sure that everybody's on the up and up. And then at the end, if something does go wrong, we've got plenty of customers the vast majority who who have had an issue with something that call us up and they go, oh man, you know what that that oil pan's leaking again, and we all at the same time go, ah oh, man, that sucks. Mm -hmm. All right, well let's see if we can get it figured out, you know. And we say this right. this is what we've done so far, and that didn't work. This time, you know, unfortunately, maybe we got to pull the chrome pan and do something else, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it, it gets challenging, and it's it, that's one of the the stress levels of sending a car home is. 
knowing, I know, something's going to go wrong. So, yeah, there's always going to be, typically there'll be you know a little bit of extra tweaking that has to get done. You know, because when these people start using their car, that's when the things are going to come out. Yep. That's when, you know, the roach, little cockroaches are going to come out of the woodwork and, you know, have little issues here. Yes, but it's not the end of the world. And we're, it's we're, not the end of the world. And, yeah. and I mean, unfortunately, it's to be expected in a restoration. And, and the, this topic, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right on. I prepared for this today. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad we're discussing this topic because I, I think a lot of shops and, and definitely the media, nobody talks about it. You know, it's always, if you look at a magazine or a website or a TV show or a, a video, it's, we put this together and look at how awesome it is and ha- we live happily ever after. Right. You know, and it's never three months later. And, and we've had so many weird things that, uh, uh, again, we, we've got kind of the hotline to a lot of the manufacturers because we know these guys. Um, mm-hmm. and, and one, the standard response, if, if we're calling on a tech question, generally it's a pretty higher level thing because we can solve most of the smaller stuff, you know, in-house, no problem. But on some of your higher level fuel injection systems or, or electronics, when we make the call, something, something happened, and uh, it, it's always the same response. Well, we haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> That's the first time somebody called about that. Right. So, we, you know, Trevor and I joke about being the first-timers on all this stuff. And mm-hmm. we had a car in the shop. It had a, uh, an electronic aftermarket fuel injection system on it that the software got corrupted. And you turn the key, and it would pump the fuel injectors at, at max PSI and flood. I mean, you want to talk about the term flooding. We had gasoline literally. It, it, if we would have turned the key, it would have hydrolocked the engine with the amount of fuel that it wow. dumped. You know, Holy cow. All the injectors just sprayed max the minute you turned the key. And we shut it off, and we're like, wow, this thing smells like gas. You know, we're looking at it. Look down there, and it's like garden hoses going into the intake manifold. So we run our diagnostics that you you can with this particular system. And, you know, there's no setting that says turn off complete evacuation spray. It's <laughs> <You know? laughs> not part of the deal. So you call a manufacturer, and you go, guess what? We got one now. And they're like, yeah, we never heard of that. You know, of course, you know. But, but that happens to us. Uh, so... Again, we had to tell a customer that this is what it was doing, and sometimes you're on the phone with them. You almost want to tell them, "Look, I can't make this up," you know. And it's it's nothing that we did. It's just it's a bug right. bug in the software, and it's going to happen. Right, that's trippy. It, yeah, it, it really is. So, you know, again, to kind of keep everybody enthusiastic about the car and 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 moving forward, and and I think the other part of it is that we put so much and and our team cares so much uh, about building these cars properly that when something happens, it's hard not to take it personally. Um, It really kind of pees in everybody's Cheerios when a customer calls and says, Hey, you know, uh, even if it's something small, like I got a, a leak or a drip or whatever. And because we're all, um, so much in the game, you know, it's hard not to look at each other on a team and say, well, did you do mm-hmm. this right? Or did you not mm-hmm. check that? And, and, and I always have to step back and say, no, no, I've got the utmost faith in these guys. I, I'm not worried right. that they overlooked something as simple as a bolt loosening up or whatnot. Sure. Uh, so, but we feel terrible about it. And, and, uh, you got to tell the customer, you know, again, we're going to, we're going to try and help you out. We just did a, 71 c10 pickup truck with an ls swap and it's this customer's only car it's his daily driver as soon as we finished this job yeah he sold his his regular truck and he he told us we knew that this is going to be his regular daily driving car and he wanted it to be that reliable and we said we can do that and he calls up with a uh a fan issue a cooling fan issue and that those are never good um and luckily this guy was uh he had two problems first the radiator started leaking and his diagnostics was he called and he said, you guys left off a, a hose clamp on, on, the, uh, on a radiator hose and it's leaking. And I thought, we left off a hose clamp, you know, hmm. that's, that's a little amateur, right? So went, ba- yeah. went back to the photographs and there's the hose clamp. So we did not leave the hose clamp off. So we're trying to figure okay. out where he was coming from, from there. And then he had this radiator leak. Well, it, he, he brought the car in. And uh, 
it turns out the overfill catch can hose didn't have a regular screw clamp on it. Okay. So he thought that was missing the hose clamp. He thought that's what the uh, what the problem was, you. and it, it really wasn't necessary in that case. And we mm. told him that, but we put one on anyway to make him happy. And uh, mm. the leak was that this brand-new aluminum radiator from a reputable company um, started separating in the middle of the core. And, oh, brother. And it was leaking right from the middle of the core. So we call the radiator company, and we say, hey, guys, uh, this brand-new radiator we just bought for you know almost a grand is leaking. Um, what do you recommend? And they said, well, usually when that happens, um, it's not grounded properly. And you've got uh, an electrolysis situation happening between the aluminum, the coolant, and the, the steel. He said, so your, your engine block isn't grounded right, so it's grounding through the radiator and causing it to unweld itself. And we said, okay, huh. what do you recommend for grounds? And they told us, well, you need one here at the battery and one here at the back of the motor. And, you know, the body's got to be grounded properly to the frame. And I said, okay, cool. So we'll check into it. So we send them the photos. We have all those and more. You know, we've right overgrown because we, we, we know this, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but it's I not want, our first rodeo, people. Right. But I wanted to, <laughs> we wanted to hear what they had to say, you know, by all means, because I don't, I don't make radiators for a living. Sure enough, they, uh, they look at the pictures and they're like, yeah, I tell you what, uh, we still think it's the ground issue, but we'll we'll send you another radiator, you know. <laughs> so, but that was one that because we managed the part purchase and it was bought through our shop, you know, we handled the replacement, got it in, not a dime charge to the customer, and he was going down the road and everything was happy uh, for about two weeks. Then all of a sudden, the fan quit, and and luckily this customer is smart enough to know that if you turn the AC on, it would mandatorily kick on the electric fan and the engine sure. would start cooling. But without the AC on, it kept rising and rising and rising. And we're all thinking, what happened here? Because it worked fine in our shop. And it turns out in this case that we bought a a pre-assembled fan relay system that had a fuse and a relay for the regular fan. And it was commanded by the uh, ECM of the engine to turn on at a certain temperature. Um, And it was the only thing that was different was that a longer lead on the fan – made the amperage required to start spinning it um, spike higher than the fuse was recommended for. Uh, So it had a 20 amp fuse in it, uh, or it had a 30 amp fuse in it, and it was supposed to run at about 20, but when when it first kicked on, it would spike to 45 amps or something, and it ended up popping the fuse. But that was all stuff that was supplied in a kit to us, you know. Mm. So it came in, you know, we're scratching our head on why the fan doesn't work, do a little diagnostic, find out that, oh, I see, you know, in this case, this particular case, you know, here you go. So we put a new, upsize the fuse a bit, make sure the rest of the wire could handle it all. And he's going mm. down the road again. And again, we didn't charge him for that either. It was something quick and easy and, you know, not a big pain. But um, these are the little things. <laughs> Yeah. And we try to warn these customers about and sure. let them know, you know, that this isn't a brand new car. And even if it was, brand new cars break too. Brand new cars break. I mean, it's amazing that brand new cars don't break more often with all the, I mean, the, 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 there's so many more parts in a car today than there was 20, 30 years ago with all the, you know, safety additions and uh, the, the engine management and all that good stuff and airbags and sensors. It, it, it blows my mind that they work at all, number one. Yeah. And the fact that they typically work very well, hmm. at least initially. Yeah, well, for the most is, part, yeah. It's astounding. I remember talking to a girl a long time ago who had a, uh, a new car in the 90s, and it had, an, I think it was a Chevy Beretta, Beretta GT. Remember those? Beretta GTs? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. The 3.4 liter V6. That's correct. Yes. Uh-huh. Not a bad... A good trivia question. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, it wasn't a bad little car, you know, and it had some kind of electrical problem or something and she was mad, you know, had to take it in and and I said, you know, if you, if you equate this to an appliance, because that's kind of how she used it, she got in and drove to work and back or whatever. I said, imagine if you treated your toaster oven the same way you treat this car. So you leave it outside, mm-hmm. you don't clean it, you don't wash it, you don't maintain it. It goes from two feet of snow to 110 degree weather. All you do is plug it in and turn it on every day and, and run mm-hmm. it all the time. The toaster oven would be smoked in a day and a half. 
Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> a really good point. The toaster oven isn't vibrating going down the road. Yeah, right. It's not being uh, um, accelerated. Uh, you're not trying to make the toast in a half a second. You know, you're <laughs> <laughs> you're not going zero to sixty in your toaster. Right. Exactly. You know. <laughs> so you're right. It is pretty amazing. The other thing that we're finding, to your point about the electronics, is even with uh, the modified cars we build, we're doing a lot of fuel injection conversions, overdrive transmissions, AC systems, audio systems, electronic controllers, and the, the components. Okay, so I'll just throw Vintage Air out there for an example. Vintage Air sells their AC system, and they make the box, and they assemble the controls and all the rest of it. But they don't make the relays and, and they don't make the connectors and that stuff. They source them from somebody else. And those parts are made in some factory overseas for as cheap amount as possible. Mm-hmm. And so now when Vintage Air sells a system, they've got this relay that they bought from somebody else that was built as cheaply as possible. And, and now they sell it to us and we, we put it in a customer's car. And if that relay goes, it's not even Vintage Air's fault. You know, it's it's the... Whoever made the relay. Source part, yeah. And those pieces are becoming so cheap and and crappy in many, many ways. I can't tell you how many relays we've gone through recently that just really? that just quit. Yeah. And huh. and when you look at them, it's like, <clears throat> you know, a relay is basically an electromagnet that moves a switch. You know, it pulls a right. little lever. And in the old days, they had a steel housing and a steel base plate. And they had a, you know, a nice winding on the coil and everything. And... And they were mm-hmm. they were substantial things. My '70 Buick sitting behind me has all of its original relays, the horn, you know, and there's a fuel <laughs> relay, all this stuff, and they're all still working. Uh, yeah. But if I go to the parts store today, probably I'm going to say one out of fifty is going to go bad in the first week. That's crazy. It, you know what? It's funny you mentioned that. My my neighbor Robert, he has a his daily driver is a is a '05 uh, Suburban, and. Um, he got into it one day, turned the key, and nothing. It wouldn't start. And he, you know, he did a little digging around and realized that the, the there's a little starter relay on the uh, in the fuse block there in the, under the hood, and he, he ended up replacing it. And he was going good. A few days later, same thing. Got into it, didn't start. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "What is going on here?" Mm-hmm. And he found he has a mechanic that he really likes that he took it to and he says you know what's going on i replaced this relay and now this relay is bad again do i have something bigger going on and the guy says you know what sometimes a bad relay is just a bad relay and you just got to go with it replace it again and you're probably going to be fine mm-hmm. and he was absolutely right he's fine now right he hasn't had an issue in about a year right so yeah, it's good to your point yeah the, these relays are not as high quality as they once were and we're so we're constantly trying to find the good relays you know to see if, if there's a company out there that's making a i hate to use the term industrial quality you know but but something that's uh-huh. that's heavier duty if you will um, uh-huh. And granted, it's going to be three times as expensive. You know, a six dollar uh-huh. relay is going to be a twenty one dollar relay, and I got to explain that to the customer. Yeah. Uh, so again, that perception of just because something's new or it's been replaced doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Right. So to kind of turn this whole conversation around, I think the important thing to do is, as a as a hot rodder, or a custom car owner, or a restored car owner, have an understanding that. At any time, there could be a problem with the car, and how do you minimize the high-pressure, stressful situations that that cause problems? You know, another mm-hmm. classic one was uh, my cousin Don. He's got that '65 Chevelle that we restored for him. It's a beautiful car. Right. We've, we went through absolutely every aspect of that thing, and he finally gets it home. And and in his situation, his wife thinks it's cool, but she doesn't really. You know, she's not really into these things, and she kind of saw it like a lot of people do. Here's a here's a thing that my husband's spending a bunch of money on, and I don't really get the enjoyment that he gets out of it. So he takes his family out after he gets the car home for a little while, and they go to a a, a famous uh, they go to Superdog, a famous hot dog drive-in joint, in Chicago. Right on, uh, yeah. And instead of going to the one that's close to their house in Chicago, they went to the new one, which is a half an hour up the road. And they go up there, and uh, um a caliper or actually a spindle mount bolt loosens up. Those cars have a backing plate bolt that is behind the spindle 
that mounts the brakes and it loosened up and jammed and it locked the wheel basically. And she's like, well, now what, you know, and, and you can just see the stress meter goes to a million and a half and beyond because now it's, (laughs) he's been working on him a long time, trying to sell him on the fact that this car is nice and it's safe and reliable and everything else. And it's been, you know, kind of the other woman the whole time. Uh, <laughs> right. and, and it finally gets everybody to go along for the ride. It's summertime, so it's hot out, you know, and, and their tensions are running higher already. And they go up there and they eat and they get in the car and they can't get home. <laughs> and he called. Well, at least they ate. Yeah, right. Well, at least it happened at Superdog. I'd be happy. I'd just stay there. I mean, right. that, that place the greatest. Sure. So it was a situation where he called me and he's like, yeah, I got a problem. And, and luckily him and his, he had the car towed back to his house and him and his neighbor jacked it up and they saw the bolt and he's understanding and has been playing around with cars long enough to know that sometimes things can loosen up and it, it was Loctite and everything. I'm not sure exactly what the heck really? happened. Yeah. Holy cow. Um, actually, I think what, what the story on that one was is uh, either the sp- the spindle hole or the bolt itself. It's a fine thread bolt. And I think it's almost an inch diameter. It's like a seven eighths bolt. Yeah, uh, I, th- yeah. I think the threads were, were just gummed up with something when it got installed and, uh, and it felt because it's a fine thread, it, it has that fine feel going, yeah. going in, takes a lot of spins, which mm-hmm. if it's stripped, it also takes a lot of spins. So <laughs> yeah. I think it was an honest mistake when it went together. Um, I see. And uh, you know, and we certainly cop to our mistakes when we make them. And I think that's kind of what happened there. But, uh, you know, it happened. So what I tell people is expect, uh, expect the unexpected to a certain degree. But if you're going to go take the family out on a Saturday night and you want a sure fire smooth trip, maybe take the car out on Thursday night and take it around the block. You know, yeah. maybe maybe buzz it around the block by yourself on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and let's stack the cards in your favor you know let's get a battery sure. tender on it to make sure it's going to start and that it's charging right. let's uh make sure the fluids and everything and that it's properly maintained mm-hmm. don't expect the thing to sit for six months to jump in it throw everybody in it and go to the amusement park and expect not to have any issues it's an old car it likes to sleep you yeah. just woke it up it's mad yeah. you know yeah it, it's happiest in the garage yeah it's sleeping right and and stay on that stuff and if you notice something if you notice something the the brakes don't feel right or something shaking or whatever get it looked at as soon as you can uh because uh this past week we're we're finishing up a 69 camaro and it was basically ready to go home to its customer and we try to simulate the usage that the car will see as much as possible and i know that this guy's got a wife and kids and they're all going to pile in this car and go cruising so we made a point to put four people in the car and drive it around and see sure. see if the wheel tubs rub or the tires, oh. you know, anything like that. Because you just don't know until you get into that. That's a great idea. Well, yeah, because otherwise, you know, we try to learn from the mistake of, yeah, the tires rub. Well, never rubbed with us. You know, what happened? Right. Well, I just put 28 yeah. people in it and they rub. It's like, oh, of course, <laughs> you know. So now, you know, again, we try to account for that stuff. And on this little test drive, uh, nothing really rubbed. But um, one of the things that we did not put new on this car, because this one came to us as a partial restoration. So part of the work was already done, including the rear brake lines. Uh, And when we did our last test drive with four people in it, uh, it leaked a rear brake line. And, And we chalked it up to being... Uh, a high payload in the car means the car is a lot heavier, means we stepped sure. on the brakes harder and found a leaky line, Oh, right? Which we never would have found just kind of cruising around or unless you're really beating the snot out of this car, which right. it's a brand new restoration and we didn't beat it up yet. Um, so that happened on our time. We're replacing the line and then, and then we'll send it home. But we were, you know, 15 minutes from sending this car home with a ticking time bomb brake failure. <laughs> <laughs> oh man but we caught it because we we're learning you know we we know a few mm-hmm. things about this stuff and we're trying to sure. implement things like yeah. exit interviews for the car we do an inspection when they come in it's a 12 page thing that we check them top to oh. bottom and now we do that same inspection right before it leaves you know and make sure all the bulbs work and all this stuff you know top to bottom and right on that's good quality control trying trying and this stuff good still man. happens Well, imagine the stuff that would have happened if you didn't do all that, if you didn't take the time and really go through it before. Well, yeah. 
releasing it to the customer. Yes. And it's to me, it's irresponsible and it's dangerous, you know, to just do that. Exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, one of our guys, uh, a new team member, uh, his name is Matt Ellibrock. He was saying that at, at one point he worked at a shop where the, you know, they'd restore a car and then the, the owner would take it down to the gas station and back and say, okay, it's ready to go. And it's like, <laughs> you need to do more than that. Uh, you're just inviting the comeback, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. We li- you're begging for we it. We like these cars a lot, but we want the owner to have them and not us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what other uh, cool stuff you got going on out there? What, what other cool cars are you restoring? Uh, well, we're, we're, um, we're, I think this coming week we're about to tear into that 1967 GTO we just brought in. If, if right that's on. where you were going that was, with that. That was my next question. <laughs> yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boy, you read me like a book. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I see your GTO behind you. And, uh, it was like <laughs> yeah. a giant gold cue card. <laughs> uh, that's a, It's an ugly car from the standpoint of its condition because it's got brown and red primer on it and things that look right. really rusty. But surprisingly, it's, it doesn't seem to be that bad. So... Uh, that one is finally going to, by sending the the 66 home and by sending this Camaro home this this coming week, uh, we'll have the front of the shop open up again so we'll be able to bring this GTO in. and uh, A lot of little stuff. Um, another one of our uh, um, our fabricators, a guy named John Moss, who, who worked with us many years ago and left and came back, um, does some really, really cool work. Uh, we've got a 70 Chevelle in the shop that the customer wanted a gauge pod, um, but not on the A-pillar and not hanging under the dash. So he quickly whipped up this aluminum little thing that um, is really neat. You know, it's just a, a three-gauge deal, and it mounts on the side of the console, so it'll be down kind of below. Um, not like a like a rally gauge package on top of the console, because this car has an under-dash uh, air conditioner, so there's no space for oh, it. Oh, I gotcha. I see. So just kind of making the best of a situation of what this this guy has, but uh, it's neat little folded up aluminum thing with some some you know bead roller ribs in it and holes punched mm-hmm. in it, and it's TIG welded and ground, and it's going to be a shame to we're, I think we're going to wrinkle coat it black to make it match the console texture, but oh, it's going to be kind it. of a shame to cover it up because uh, it's cool looking, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. I, I'm we're, we're very very lucky in the fact that our crew. I just admire these people so much and, and I respect what they do so much that when I, I walk through and I stop at the different stations and it's like, Oh, that's really cool. You know? <laughs> and, yeah. and I don't want to bother them cause they're working, but I want to be the car guy and hang out and say like, Hey, what sure. are you doing there? You know? And, and yeah, they're always doing something in the shop that, uh, you know, I could stand there all day and, and bother them, but, uh, that's not my job, but at least it's good to know that, you know, I work, I'm lucky enough to, to where we work in a place where people are doing cool stuff all the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they're doing, I mean, they're doing what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. And you don't have to be looking over their shoulders all the time. That's a really great, really great thing. Right. And that's not what I'm doing. It's not like I'm supervising. I'm just intrigued. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we're either shooting video or pictures of it anyway, but it's like, wow, did you see what, uh, you know, what Brett's doing back there? Did you see what Jeff's painting? It's like, wow, you know. That it's is cool. cool. It's fun so, to be able to spectate. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So anyway, uh, I think we've, uh, we've come pretty far on this show and I'm curious to know if I got the trivia question right. And I think I didn't. All right. Well, we're going to see here. Uh, my question to you was when did the first, uh, mass produced overhead valve V8 hit the streets in America, uh, by, you know, for the American market by a U.S. automaker. And your answer was 1949, and the bonus question was, what manufacturer? And you said Cadillac, and you are right on both counts, my friend. Oh, well, right. I would would have accepted either Cadillac or Oldsmobile for the correct manufacturer. Well, that was what I was going to say. came out with the rocket in 49 as well. Yeah, yeah. How about that? Because when I was saying that, I was thinking, I know Oldsmobile was right around there at the same Mm -hmm. time, too, with the the rocket and also uh didn't buick i think buick led the charge with the dynaflow automatic first uh, before probably oldsmobile had the hydromatic or cadillac had the hydromatic the next year or something my research didn't take me there kevin so i couldn't say for sure yeah yeah wow well lucky me night well played by the way because you had uh, me I, I, you know what i'm like i'm not giving anything away to this guy again <laughs> <laughs> well you didn't 
Uh, all right. So, you know, for the past whole episode, I've been wondering about that. <laughs> all right. Lucky me. So in your case, uh, the question was, in what year did the federally mandated 55 mile an hour uh, speed limit take place? Mm-hmm. Um, and the bonus, which is purely my opinion slash understanding of why. Mm-hmm. And you said 1974. That's correct. You're right. That is right correct. on. Look at me. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> that is this, right. Congratulations. This is, folks, this is a historic moment here <laughs> on V8 Radio. This is the first trivia question I've gotten correct in the in my entire V8 Radio career. That's not true. No, I've not correct. gotten one right. No, sir. I have not. Really? really? Wow. I've come close. Maybe. Well, you're just such a winner in my yeah. eyes. You know? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even notice. Yeah. Well, that's uh, congrats Thanks. to you. And then, as far as the uh, the motivation for that, uh, you said you recall the '55 Saves Lives yes. campaign, and uh, perhaps it was because of safety was your final answer. And I, I think that's that's definitely true. And I think that's what they were kind of selling it to the public as. But I, I think the real reason was the uh, fuel consumption, which you also yeah, mentioned. I, I would. Um, I think in the oil embargo years, they really tried to uh, tried to kind of curtail that. But you know, it's funny if you think about it. Since then, the speed limit just recently went to eighty in some places in Nevada. It's been eighty in some places in Utah for quite a while. Hmm. Um, it's been seventy and seventy-five, and then of course, who was it? Uh, was it Montana that had the reasonable and yes. prudent? Yes, it was Montana. Yeah, no speed limit. And, you know, above 55, it's not like people vaporize and just True. immediately die. True. But so I, I guess uh, I think a, a couple reasons for that, too, is I think the states really wanted to be in control of their own speed limits, too. I know I, from what I remember, if the states didn't adopt the 55, the federal government would have withheld subsidies for their uh, highway improvements, for their road improvements, and I think they, you know, kind of uh, strong-armed them into into going along with it. But I mean, nowadays cars are so much safer than they were in the 70s. You you could you're going to survive uh, a high-speed wreck a lot more often than you would back then. You would now. Yeah. So I think that's without that's a, a doubt as well. I'm still kind of trying to get my mind around the government uh, incentivizing less oil consumption. Uh, mm. Because although that's what they're supposed to be doing, you would think that's a big nip in the tax yeah. income for them if they start selling less less, less oil, gasoline yeah. and less. It'd be interesting to know what the taxes were on gasoline back then per gallon and how much the state and federal government's mm-hmm. got. That would be interesting. Because I'm pretty sure it's a lot more now. <laughs> I would agree with that, absolutely. Because I remember leaving, when I left California in 2003, gasoline was about two twenty a gallon at my local Union 76 station, and I think th- a whole 40 cents of that was tax. Wow. Huh. Yeah. And each state sets it differently. I remember. Do you remember? Um, I think. Uh, I think Obama was still president. I think he was in his first term, and gas was just outrageous. It was up here. Yeah, it was pushing about five dollars a gallon. I, I paid a couple yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To fill up Jenny's yeah. blazer, it was seventy-five dollars one time, and I remember the state forfeited their share of the tax for a period of time to make it a little easier on the on the consumer right i thought that was that was fantastic but after a while yeah they said, well that, we're gonna give it take that tax back sure right yeah exactly yeah that that doesn't change mm-hmm. uh i do recall hearing an interview with leno and i think it might have been adam carolla and jay leno and jay was talking about where the the magic number of 55 came that from right? yeah and i he seemed to suggest that it, there is no scientific formula you know, why 55? I mean, if you think about it, the cars are capable of driving faster. It's not like they're 2% safer at 53 miles an hour versus 58 uh-huh. miles an hour. 
And uh, he, he recalled a study that um, I guess one of the states did, or maybe it was a federal thing. It was probably 10 years ago when I heard this, so I don't remember it in detail. But they, they polled a bunch of drivers in, the, in like the late 50s. And they said, okay, drive this car. What do, you, what do you think the highway speed should be? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And uh, how about 55? That, that sounds great. <laughs> and that was it. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was, uh, yeah, it's 100% non-scientific of why that 55 number even happened. Huh. And, so, you know, certainly, you know, if everybody was driving 60, 65, or 70, I mean, in the 60s, uh, a lot of the states were 70 and 75 mile an hour limits. Yeah. And if you uh, uh, reduce that, yeah, you're going to save some fuel. So I don't know. It's just funny where they, this stuff even comes from. It is from, funny. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Well, congratulations. You. you got them all right. right. on. I'm going yeah. to go buy a steak dinner wow. tonight now. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Just make sure you follow the speed yeah, limit when you get there. That's for sure. All right, man. Well, another... Uh, what was it? It, it was moderately a neato episode. It was my. <laughs> it was moderately yeah, neato for sure. That. Uh, I appreciate the time. It was uh, fun to do, and uh, we are still available on on iTunes and on the Google Play uh, deal, where you can uh, subscribe to the podcast and on TuneIn Radio, and of course on the v8radio.com website and the Facebook page, uh, which is still humming along if you've got uh, feedback or thoughts or comments you can leave them there and, and we check that all the time because uh, you can't really get away from facebook no, uh, so that's a, a good place to go so we appreciate you hanging and listening and, and hearing mike being victorious on the trivia question <laughs> <laughs> and we will see you or hear you or talk to you next time on va radio winner winner chicken dinner